You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. Here's Nate. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 begins with Paul saying in verse 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, truthfully, this statement is more closely connected with everything that he'd just written to the Corinthian church about in chapter 8 through 10. There, he had urged the Corinthians to run their race like he was trying to run his race without any disqualification. He wanted them to be convinced of their liberty in Christ, but willing to, when helpful to the faith of someone else, lay down their liberty in order to edify the target of their love. So Paul here says, look, imitate me in that. Imitate me. I'm laying down my life. I'm laying down my rights for others. Imitate me as I am of Christ. And so he was following Christ. Therefore, we can follow and imitate Paul. And thankfully, fortunately, Paul has given us much to imitate in our modern time. The words that Paul wrote, the life that he lived as recorded for us in the second half of the book of Acts, are exemplary and beautiful for us to follow and heed. But even in our modern time, we need more than Paul. We need modern examples to follow. And Paul was that for the Corinthian church, and we need that in our own era as well. Now, in verse 2, he moves on to a different subject when he says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, with this statement, of course, Paul flies against much of cultural thought. Now, look, the reality is that within God's word, there are bound to be moments where God in his word, disagrees with man and popular opinion and thought. And here, Paul announces that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, there are a couple of misnomers that must be dispelled dispelled at the outset. Misnomer number one would be the idea that men are somehow better in the eyes of God. That concept is done away with when we consider the second half of Paul's statement. The head of Christ is God. Jesus is equal with God, Philippians 2, verse 6, but is in submission to the Father. So the Father nor the Son are better than one another, and you could throw the Spirit in as well. They are co-equal. They are, in fact, one. That's how co-equal they are. But there are different roles within the triunity of God, and the head of Christ is the Father. So the first misnomer, men are better, it just doesn't work with the equation. God the Father is not better than God the Son. They are co-equal, just in different 
roles. Uh, the husband is not better than his wife, but he is in a different role. Misnomer number two is that man was merely the source of women. That's what some people do with verse three. They say that the, the source of a wife is her husband. In other words, man came first and the source of woman was man. And that's all that this is saying is that there was an order in creation, but it's not talking about roles in any kind of way. And so in that concept, head, the word head would be replaced with source of. But this cannot reasonably mean source of the woman because the Father is not the source of Christ. Jesus is eternal. He's from eternity past. Nor, in Ephesians 5 verse 23, is the husband the source of his wife. He's not the creator of his wife. So, with those misnomers done away with, the application here is that God is looking for men to servant lead in the home and also to servant lead in the church. Now, a big question about the passage we're about to read together is the question, what problem did Paul confront with this teaching? You know, and it, of course, it's very difficult for us to know the contemporary issue that was facing the Corinthian church. Our times are far different than their times. But the possibility is that the Corinthians had begun to think that there was no difference between their male and female members. And so Paul wanted to correct that concept. So he does it in verse 4 through 10, which we'll read in its entirety. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have, verse 10, a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. The idea there being that the angels understand submission and rejoice to see it occur. Now, in that paragraph, there are some interesting, if not fascinating, phrases that have led to many questions over the years. Uh, Paul talks about head coverings or a head being uncovered. He talks about a head being shaven or a woman wearing her hair short. He says it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or to shave her head and that a man ought not to cover his head. So these are fascinating phrases. Later, in verse 14 and 15, it will get even more interesting when Paul says, Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, 
in all of these interesting phrases, it seems as if we are allowed to state that the head covering hair growth issue that Paul is dealing with here amongst the Corinthians was cultural rather than timeless in its application. Part of the reason that we can say that is because Paul invited that thought. In verse 13, he said, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray with her head uncovered? So he gave the church leeway, in other words, to make the decision. Think about your time, think about your place, think about your context. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? And it would seem that in many cultures of our day, it is fine for a wife to pray with her head uncovered. And I'm sure that there are cultures on earth where, though it might be biblically permissible for a woman to pray or a wife to pray with her head uncovered, it might not be culturally wise. And then in verse 16, he says, If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So Paul is not as much advocating specifically for a head covering as he is advocating for order within the home. He's advocating for male leadership within the home. So the cultural conclusion here in Corinth was probably something like this. When a wife of a man in the Corinthian congregation prayed or prophesied with her head uncovered, then somehow she dishonored her head. She should, in that culture and context, cover her head. Many scholars think that the uncovered head in that culture and time and place, the city of Corinth, might have indicated singleness or a lack of marital submission. Well, the shaven head might have indicated a symbol of prostitution in that city or a symbol of adultery or even a symbol of maleness. And so Paul, looking at the Corinthians, says, this just doesn't seem right. This is not befitting the order that I've mentioned to you in verse 3. Now, Paul also announces in verse 7, 8, and 9 a few things about the woman. He says she's the glory of man. She came from man, and she is for man. Uh, She is still, of course, the image of God, but the glory of man. Now, the biblical evidence is that God's design was for male and female role differentiation. In Genesis chapter 2, there is the order of creation that evidences this or gives us a clue of this. Adam being formed first and then Eve. There is also in Genesis chapter 2 the fact that Eve was created in order to bring companionship and help to Adam. Now, Paul alluded to that here in verse 9, that the woman was created for man, woman for man. And then there is also an indication, or it's implied, that Adam named Eve, which especially in that Old Testament cultural context implied authority, like a parent naming their children 
there was a, a sense of leadership when Adam named Eve. So there's a, there's a clue of role differentiation all the way back in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 3 also points to role differentiation when it tells us that Eve, though she was tempted and deceived and ate the forbidden fruit, that after doing that, she gave it to Adam. And when Adam ate and God came, God looked not for Eve, but for Adam. God held Adam responsible both then and also in the New Testament. The New Testament letters, the apostles, clearly placed the blame for the fall of humanity squarely upon Adam's shoulders. They thought of him as the leader. Genesis 3 verse 16 also indicates a differentiation between the male and female role. In the curse that came upon humanity, God said to the woman when he pronounced her curse, he said, I will, verse 16 of Genesis 3, intensify your labor pains. You will bear children in anguish. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. That phrase, desire will be for, is later in Genesis used to describe sin's attitude towards Cain. It speaks of a domination, a ruling over. So there would be this desire in Eve, according to Genesis 3.16, to rule illegitimately over Adam as part of the curse. Now the focus on this part of the curse was on changes which would happen to Eve. You know, labor pains, a desire to rule over her husband, not on what Adam would do to Eve. His curse would come later. Now, there are other clues all throughout the Bible besides just in Genesis 2 and 3. Genesis 14 shows us rules regarding the public assembly. 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15 speaks of the importance of the elder teacher role in the body of Christ being occupied by men. Ephesians 5, verse 22 to 33 speaks of wives following their husband's leadership just as the church is to follow Christ's leadership. There is the analogy of the Trinity that we saw earlier, a co-equal triunity of God, but various roles within the Trinity, some which submit to the others, the Son submitting to the Father, the Spirit working to glorify the Son. And then there are examples in Scripture, and this is probably one of the loudest witnesses of the differentiation between male and female roles within scripture. There was male leadership in Israel, male leadership with Christ and his discipleship team, male leadership in the church, and then male leadership reaffirmed all throughout the Bible, but also reaffirmed in the New Testament. And there are times, of course, where women play significant, even leadership at times, roles in Israel and the Gospels and the early church, but there are roles other than those of the highest human religious authority. So there were times where you might find a prophetess or a female teacher, but never a female priest or the female head of a tribe or a female king or female disciple or female elder. One exception is Deborah in the book of Judges, who operated as a judge and prophesied over all of Israel, 
But that's a difficult example because Israel was so spiritually corrupt at that time. And then finally, a great evidence of this is the passage that is before us today. Not so much the head covering portion, but the emphasis behind the head covering. That there is a differentiation between the male and female husband and wife members in the church in Corinth. Now, there are objections to the different points that I'm making here in this teaching. Uh, one objection is that this view that there are differences is freedom is is contrary, excuse me, to the freedom of the gospel. But the gospel never does away with all the manifestations of relational hierarchy. Parents and children still re retain their roles. Employers and employees still retain their roles. We live with structures like these every day of our lives. So the gospel does not evaporate or disintegrate those roles. Paul's teaching here does not imply, though, that the Father is better than Christ, nor that man is better than woman, nor should we feel that way ourselves. In fact, we should feel the opposite as we embrace the scripture. Others would say that that interpretation that I'm giving of Genesis 2 is wrong. Someone had to be created first, they say. God helps us. Women in Israel named their sons. That's no big deal that Eve was created second, helps Adam, and that Adam gave her a name. But that's not an interpretation of Genesis 2. It's just pointing out Paul's observation from Genesis 2. Man first woman for man. It's what he is drawing out of the text, not what the reader is drawing out of the text. So a conclusion here of just this little section that I'm giving is that if God and humanity are what the Bible claims, then we should expect the words and principles and teachings of scripture to disagree with our popularly received concepts. For me, just personally, it's no fun to follow a God who always agrees with me if that's the case, then I have a feeling I've created and fashioned God in my own image. No, the God of the Bible who transcends time and space, who is holy and righteous, since, of course, I'm forgiven and I'm redeemed and I'm covered, but I am not flawless. I'm not perfect. My mind is not perfect mind that thinks perfect thoughts. So there are bound to be times where there is something in the Bible that is not agreeable to me at first glance. It is for me to submit to it, to recognize that there is a holy and righteous God and to come under what God has communicated in his word. So here Paul is promoting this concept amongst the Corinthian believers. Look, there's a difference between your male and female members. Nevertheless, verse 11, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Now this is where it's beautiful. You know, we can't do without one another. We have a dependency on one another in Christ, not to mention a deep appreciation for one another. You see, the, the, the problem is when we think that there is going to be a sameness amongst male and female members in the body of Christ, uh, operating in the same roles in the same ways with the same functions, it makes it very difficult to appreciate the differences 
between one another. But once those differences are embraced, once those different roles are embraced, there can be greater celebration and appreciation and, a, and an understanding that actually we aren't independent from one another. We need one another in the body of Christ. He goes on to say in verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, is it her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So here, basically, when it came to a wife praying without her head covered or a man wearing long hair, in our modern time, it doesn't seem to stumble believers or hinder non-believers. So uh, you would imagine, at least in the culture that I'm in, that both of these cases are fine. A man having longer hair, a woman operating, living life without a head covering. But, verse 17, in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, or f but for the worse. Now here, Paul enters into a new section. He is now going to deal with their group meetings, their corporate gatherings. And really, he's going to talk about that all the way through chapter 14. What, what it was like when they came together. Now, apparently, they had done something terrible with the Lord's Supper, the taking of communion. First, reading between the lines of the next few verses, it seems as if they had turned the communion meal into a corporate meal. So rather than eating the bread, drinking the cup in a symbolic way to remember Jesus, they had turned it into a potluck or a barbecue, some kind of large-scale gathering. Now, there's nothing wrong with that kind of thing, but it's just that the communion table shouldn't be turned into that. Second, it seems they had become divisive and factious within that corporate meal. So it wasn't a all-together, we-love-one-another kind of experience, but there was some division, as we'll see. And then third, they had become unequal neglecting the poor within their corporate meal. So the wealthy, you know, they had brought a bunch of food, they ate a bunch of food, and everybody was happy for them, and they were happy for themselves, but the poor within the church who didn't have much to bring, they were being neglected, it seems, in that corporate meal. They had, the, the Corinthians, completely missed the point of the Lord's Supper. Communion says that Jesus is our Lord corporately, not just personally. A communion speaks of our unity to one another and to Christ, but also speaks of our equality, that we all needed the blood of Jesus. So in a sense, what the Corinthians really needed was to simply remember Jesus Christ, and the communion meal was designed for just that. Okay, so let's get into Paul's correction in verse 18. He says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, we've already seen how the Corinthians divided up into theological factions, but here we see that they had social factions as well. These were basically class distinctions that existed in the Corinthian church, a little bit of social snobbery. He says, when you come together, verse 20, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat, 
For in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now, again, they thought they were eating the Lord's Supper, but Paul announces, you're actually not. You're breaking the Lord's Supper and actually behaving contrary to the Lord's Supper. Each one, he says, verse 21, goes ahead with his own meal. Well, the other is hungry. They're getting drunk together. In, in other words, the wealthy, they brought a lot to the meal. Well, the poor brought what they could, but the rich had then felt entitled to the best of the best. They were, according to Paul in verse 22, despising the church and humiliating those who have nothing. You know, the times of poverty in someone's life are times of opportunity for the body of Christ to show love. But the Corinthian church was doing just the opposite. Now, in verse 23, he takes them back to the point of the Lord's Supper. He says, For I received from the Lord, uh, this might have been directly in a vision or indirectly from men, but either way from the Lord. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so the point here is remembrance of Christ, to remember the Lord, to remember the new covenant that we are under. 4 verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, our meal has a message attached to it, uh, to us personally, uh, you know, that we've been saved, to us corporately, we've all together are entering, have entered into this new community of faith by the blood of Jesus, and to the world, the gospel being preached, but also the message that Christ will return. That's why he says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread, verse 27, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and eats and eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Here, the Corinthians had completely forgotten the point of communion. They had transformed the Lord's Supper into a common meal designed to satisfy their flesh rather than a memorial of Christ. And Paul urged them not to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. You see, they were guilty of cheapening the meaning of communion. They had ignored the meaning of the bread and cup, and they had forgotten Jesus entirely in that meal. Now, many have taken Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians and have applied it out of context. They have given way to all kinds of over-the-top, soul-searching, introspection, and silent 
confession, which are all good if done in the right way, but in an over-the-top way that produces a sense of unworthiness and disqualification or a doubting of our readiness to partake of communion is, is not right. A careless and reckless attitude towards the Lord's Supper is what Paul is talking about. Paul wanted the Corinthians to make sure that they were there with the right heart and for the right reasons to remember Jesus. So then, verse 33, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another, you know, partake together, for when you have that meal together, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.